Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The International Monetary Fund is the firefighter of the global financial system. Since its birth in 1944, it's monitored the world economy, and today it can lend up to a trillion dollars in total to its 189 members. But 75 years on, is it still fit for purpose? This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And today we're asking, does the IMF need to change? The global economy began 2018 on a high. The IMF hailed the broadest synchronised global growth upsurge since 2010. This year started very differently, with markets in a tailspin and a government shutdown in America. Despite some good news, the IMF has revised down its global growth predictions for the next two years, with warnings about a slowdown in China, tussles over tariffs, rising interest rates and uncertainty over Brexit. My guest is Christine Lagarde, the fund's managing director since 2011. Now in her second term, she's the first woman to hold that role. She was also the first woman to serve as finance minister of a G7 country for her native France. Christine Lagarde, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. So in Hong Kong a year ago, you were urging governments to fix the roof while the sun is shining. A good, solid metaphor. Did anyone listen? Some people did, um, not all. And what we've seen since is uh, that the sun is not shining as much as it did. And we're certainly seeing darker clouds on the horizon. But it's not a reason not to fix the roof. So we keep advocating the fixing where and when it's needed. And what do you mean by that? What were you suggesting that the global system needed to pay more attention to? You know, it's it's interesting that you're addressing it from that angle, because what I meant to say was there is a lot that you uh, can and should do at the domestic level, which, if put together, will actually produce a, a better outcome uh, than if you were doing it, you know, on a piecemeal basis and only when the crisis comes. So my, my plea to them was make sure that you replenish your buffers to the extent that they've been used during the time of the crisis. Make sure that you implement those structural reforms that will unleash the economic potential that we, that you have, whether it's by opening up markets, whether it's by, you know, making the, uh, the business environment more friendly, whether it's by uh, making the job market more flexible and uh, facilitating access of women to the economy and to finance. So if you all do that, uh, then certainly you will be stronger uh, together if and when those dark clouds that we were seeing far away on the horizon uh, were to get closer and were to break up. And you've talked about the four clouds looming that could whip up a perfect or imperfect economic storm. They're Brexit uncertainty, trade tensions, tariff escalations and global financial tightening, as well as the deceleration in the Chinese economy. Which of those clouds do you think is most threatening? Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because they are getting darker and yet some of them might dissipate. Uh, the one that certainly has uh, escalated compared with one year ago is the trade tension 
cloud because we have seen an escalation of, of tariffs as a result as part of the sort of tit-for-tat process uh, engaged between between the United States and China. Yet this cloud might, might clear uh, if the two uh, leaders of those countries come to a productive and far-reaching agreement that would not only include uh, commitment to purchase and reduce their bilateral deficit, uh, which will not impact the global imbalances, by the way, uh, but also includes provisions concerning protection of intellectual property, uh, also includes a better definition of the state-owned enterprises, also includes a, a sharper definition and understanding of what subsidies are and how they can cause bad trade terms and unfair trade terms eventually so that's a cloud which is which is big which could cause significant damage but that could also dissipate uh, gradually over time and i'm saying over time because the confidence impact that has resulted from the existence of that cloud is not going to go away just like that it's going to take time and it's going to take uh, for the parties to actually demonstrate that they can respect their agreement and it will also take no additional tensions uh, waking up in other corners of the world. The second cloud, which is completely uncertain, but you're better positioned in London than anybody else to appreciate that, is what is the outcome of Brexit at the end of the month? And will the inevitable delay sort of defer the uncertainty and, and contribute to increasing the risk? Or will it abate the risk and, and allow the parties to actually come to a settlement and to an agreement that will be not as bad as it could be if there was no such agreement? Uh, the third one which has changed over the course of the last few months is the, the tightening of monetary policy. Because... The anticipation of multiple interest rate uh, rises in the course of 2019, possibly 2020, has, has reduced. And we are clearly receiving signals from the ECB and from other uh, central banks that they're going to continue a degree of accommodative uh, monetary policies for a bit longer, given that uh, the growth projections have been lowered and they want to continue to support the economies. There's quite quite a lot of, to get our teeth into in that weather forecast, isn't there? Uh, let's, let's dive yeah. into one of those in a bit more detail. Uh, rightly, as you say, talking to you from London at the moment in the middle of this political storm in the run-up to what was intended to be the Brexit leaving date at the end of March, less than a month left. How worried is the IMF about Brexit? We know that uh, Brexit will have uh, a negative impact on the UK economy. We have um, done some forecast for that. And obviously, the uh, downside of Brexit will vary depending on the terms of the exit. Uh, it will also have an impact on its trading partners, the largest of which is the other European countries. And we know that some of the European countries, particularly in the euro area, will suffer more than others. We know that Ireland will be affected significantly. We know that uh, the Netherlands will be affected as well, Germany to a lesser extent. But, you know, whatever the outcome, we know that it's not going to be a plus. And the sort of less accommodating uh, the, the, the terms of exit, the harsher the terms, the harder the impact. So what would your advice be then to the UK and the EU in this very crunchy period now of negotiations over the Theresa May deal? 
You know, from a pure economic perspective uh, and financial perspective is, first of all, anticipate uh, the worst outcome. And, and I'm very pleased to see that uh, the ECB and the Bank of England have taken lots of steps and measures. And Mark Carney has announced some of them in order to anticipate possible anxiety and worry and panic on the markets. And I think that on that front, they've done a good job of anticipating, you know, planning for the worst, if you will. You know, what What if there is a crisis of liquidity? What if markets are completely uh, volatile and, and, uh, and we need to put in place um, measures? What about the, you know, the trading of derivatives? What, what about the counterparties? I think that they've addressed all these issues in a, in a pretty effective way. I'm not sure that the same has happened or actually could happen uh, in the area of uh, supply chain disruption. And, you know, the fact that the, the United Kingdom is an island or composed of islands, actually, uh, clearly um, makes it worse in terms of supply of, of spare parts, uh, supply of uh, various components that are needed for the manufacturing of products that the UK uh, produces. So, you know, economically, financially, precautions planning for the worse and, and hoping for the better is certainly the, the, the best approach. So you don't now, accept the logic, and I just you know, throw in a, a view, say, from uh, those who say, well, we did vote for Brexit, and if no deal, although it would be very challenging, might in the long run actually turn out to Britain's advantage. What would you say to that case? I would say that we have, we have to deal with the, with the short term, we have to deal with the uh, the manufacturing uh, lines that exist. We have to deal with the providing of services. We have to deal with the fact that the UK is closely interconnected and and uh, um, bound uh, with other economies on the continent, and that the short term is going to be difficult to manage. Requires anticipation. Requires precautions to be taken. And, uh, you know, even if we were to assume that a lot of the trade that is currently taking place with the, with the European Union will be partly substituted with other countries, those trade agreements are still to be agreed and, and for some of them negotiated. So it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm more concerned mm. about what is going to happen in the next few years rather than what it will be like in 20 years time when the shock has been absorbed and when new terms of trade have been negotiated and when the supply chains have been reorganised. And if there weren't a deal by the 29th of March, the official leaving date, would you be in favour of an extension of postponing Brexit? Well, it seems to me, based on on the practical the practicalities of ratifications and the parliamentary process and the agenda and all the rest of it, it seems that it's inevitable that there is some delay. How long that delay should be, will be, is clearly for the parties to uh, to agree amongst themselves. The the issue of the uh, the I European what I'm Parliament is elections where, is yes. going to be in the middle of that. I'm just suggesting it. Would you would you feel you put you know, as you say you're looking at it from the economic perspective, not the political one? But would you, for mm. instance, put more emphasis or perhaps a bit more pressure on, say, the EU side to come to terms to fend off that danger uh, of no deal? Or what would you do next in this particular squeeze? You know, it's 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 a. Uh... <laughs> It's a, it's a difficult dilemma because 
clearly when you work on a deal and I've done I've done many deals myself in previous life when you Indeed. have a time constraint it, it forces you to work hard and around the clock in order to resolve the outstanding issues if suddenly you have a sense of comfort because you have an extra few weeks and extra an extra few months then the the tension and the pressure uh, both come down and and there is not not as much urgency so I you know I'm not in the heart of those negotiations uh, the concern I have is the the degree of uncertainty that there is still around uh, the outcome the uh, you know it takes two to to tango and it takes two to agree and i would hope that the two parties can actually come to uh, to to an agreement and and to being able to address this issue of the irish backstop and and yet preserves the 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 so so valuable peace agreement between uh, northern ireland and uh, and ireland Let's look to China, which has just revealed its manufacturing sector sunk to a three-year low uh, at the opening of the National People's Congress. On Tuesday, Chinese Premier said the country is aiming for 6 to 6.5% growth in 2019. That's the lowest in, I think, about three decades. Uh, what should, uh, should China focus on to offset the damage from that and indeed beyond China? No, I don't see it as damage. I see it as an inevitable um, process by which an economy that has grown massively over the course of the last three decades has to soften the, the pace, has to slow down. The real question is, are they going to be able to control that slowdown so that it's not an accelerated slowdown? That's the, on, that's the concern that I have. Number one. Number two is that slowdown, which is partly driven by the the credit uh, that is offered to the economy, going to be directed sufficiently to the productive sector and to the enterprises that are not necessarily the state-owned enterprises and the big guys. Uh, Those are the two key questions. You know, slow down the pace but do it at a a sensible and and, um, steady but not accelerated way number one. Number two, make sure that all factors in the economy that are productive, that are effective, that are efficient, are given access to credit and can prosper. Let's look to the trade war and the standoff between China and America. It does seem that some sort of deal is about uh, to uh, emerge there. Is this the conclusion really of a, a bit of a messy clash of of egos in the world, world economy? Or do you think that the trading system globally will be different as a result of what has happened and of that clash? You know, I'm convinced that the the trading system will be different. No question Mm. about that. When I look at the proliferation of proposals, uh, whether coming out of Canada, of the EU, of Japan, um, as far as the WTO itself is concerned, uh, when I look at the variety of subjects that are rumored to be debated uh, between the US and China, and which clearly will have number one spillover effects to other economies, and might be extended beyond uh, the bilateral relationship between China and US, when I hear that there is a discussion about intellectual property, when I hear that there is discussion about state-owned enterprises definition and what they do, when I hear about uh, where are the subsidies and uh, how are they defined, subtly, I think that there will be an improvement of the trading system. I'm still to hear uh, a lot of discussions about the service industry, although maybe there as well we might see surprises, which would be very helpful because we believe that, you know, 
more open uh, trade in the field of services is yet to come, and we haven't seen it yet. I mean, more broadly, in terms of how you see the trading system developing, you've called for a new multilateralism. It seems in some ways brave and in some ways the antithesis of the political conversation that's going on in many parts of the world, and particularly in America. Are you getting your message through? Well, I will carry on pushing the message because I'm very convinced that that cooperation is absolutely needed. And... You know, we just use the example of trade. Um, it it has to be deeper, it has to be broader, and it has to be better. And by that I mean, uh, you know, services have to be included. Um, the issue of fairness of the terms of trade. But also, and that touches on the domestic level that has to interact with the global multilateral level, uh, measures have to be taken. Domestic policies have to be envisaged that concern uh, people that are at risk of being left to the side of the trade routes, left to the side of the technological breakthrough. So that new multilateralism that I'm calling for is one that would be, you know, focused on people, focused on outcome for them that would also be focused on how growth can be made more inclusive in order not to leave to the side of the road those people that will be affected by uh, more trade, that will be affected by more technological breakthrough. And this new multilateralism that I'm talking about is also one that would make everybody more accountable. You know, I'm shocked when I'm, I'm really shocked when I hear from young people around the world that I meet in whichever place I visit. I'm shocked to hear them that their main concern is actually the issue of corruption. Mm. This is something that cannot be tackled in a one-sided way. This is something that needs to be tackled up front through multiple angles, anti-money laundering provisions, banking regulations, international taxation, transparency, and to do that, you're not going to do it domestically at home. You're going to have to do it on a global basis through cooperation. We're seeing some of it. We're not seeing enough of it. I have to then ask on this new multilateralism, and you've been out and about now for a number of years saying this really needs to be boosted. But what does the IMF need to be doing differently? You've been in charge at a time perhaps when global institutions, financial and economic institutions, much more suspiciously looked at by a lot of citizens than they were before the financial crash. Well, I'll tell you something, Anne. First of all, many people have no idea what the IMF does. So I, I tend to think that we are both an architect and a firefighter. We're trying to be good architects by proposing how economies should be structured, what reforms should be undertaken, what productivity um, uh, space there is to be explored, how women can come to the table and to the job market much more. That's what we do best when we are architects. And to help the countries, we provide technical assistance to that end. We are firefighters when there is a major issue. You know, when Argentina goes through a financial crisis, we are prepared to help. Uh, when Ecuador needs help, we are prepared to help. When Egypt needs to also go through and refinance itself. When Ukraine is adopting a number of reforms, including anti-corruption measures, I keep my fingers crossed here, uh, the IMF can help. So we are, we are doing that uh, architecture job and firefighting job. And, you know, I'm not seeing any decline in the number of countries that are knocking on my door for either or.
So I don't think that we're facing an existential crisis. However, I also think that we need to refocus this new multilateralism in the three areas that I've mentioned. And particularly putting people at the center, to me, means that we have to be mindful of the social protection. We have to be mindful of women's contribution to the economy. We have to be mindful of the fiscal dimension of climate change. We have to be mindful of the impact of excessive inequality on sustainable growth. And we have to be mindful of the theme that I just mentioned, which is the impact of corruption on, you know, the appetite of young people to join the job market and to think that they're not going to be uh, mm. cheated along the way. At one place where you, your role as, as firefighter is obviously being, being called upon and maybe, maybe more so would be Venezuela. Do you see the IMF uh, stepping into that role any time soon? And, and what would the conditions be? As soon as we are asked by the legitimate authorities of that country to come in and help, we will come in and we'll have a monumental job on our hands because this is a country that has not opened its door to the IMF for the last 15 years. So we have not conducted any of the annual audit that we do on all our members in the institution. So there is a lot of due diligence that we're going to have to do in a very expedited manner, but which will be required in order... Do you think it's likely order... that you'll be in there for an IMF rescue on Venezuela? I think it will be fundamentally important because we play a catalyst role and the amount of financing that will be needed is, you know, significant. Uh, our wallet will not be sufficient. We will open our wallet, we will put our brain to it, and we will make sure that our heart is in the right place to help uh, the poorest and the most exposed people. But it's going to require significant financing from all the international community. The European Central Bank is meeting on Thursday, March the 7th, to consider the prospect of a Eurozone slowdown. What's your forecast for that? What I can tell you on the European economies is that that's, you know, one of the regions in the world where we are downgrading our forecast and which is taking a hit as a result of conjunctural factors such as, you know, the automobile industry uh, sector in Germany, uh, the uh, probably the impact on French growth as a result of the protest that we have seen for the last two months. Uh, the uncertainty of Brexit will have an impact and the, the current um, difficulty that Italy has faced in particular with the European Commission on its budget and the, the, the market tensions as a result will all have an impact on the, the forecast for Europe. The German position, the great powerhouse of European economies, should Germany loosen its purse strings to help fight a, a downturn? It was Traditionally, it's been very reluctant to do so. Are you putting a bit we, of pressure know, on we, that? We have, yeah, we have consistently said that um, uh, Germany uh, could invest in sectors that would actually, you know, help its productivity and make it a more efficient economy, uh, whether it's in infrastructure, maintenance of existing infrastructure, whether it's in, um, you know, 5Gs and better connectivity, whether it's in um, access for women to the job market by having more childcare centers, by having, you know, more flexible workplace. But we have to acknowledge that the most recent wage agreement that has been concluded between the unions and the uh, the employers, whether public or private, of an eight percent increase over the next thirty three months, is 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 a good a good step in the right direction. This week, Friday, March the eighth, is International Women's Day. You said once that there wouldn't have been a financial crisis if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman Sisters. 
And yet, still in the, the kinds of places we tend to bump into you, groups of international economic meetings, high finance, you're often the woman who stands out in a, a crowd of men, particularly now Janet Yellen is no longer at the Fed. How does that feel? feels a bit lonely and I miss Jeanette a great deal but I'm, I'm, I think we all wherever we are have to do our bit and I was particularly proud uh, to hire at the IMF for the first time ever uh, a female chief economist uh, Gita Gopina who is, uh, who is a fantastic uh, economist and head of our research department and, uh, and we are just pushing the envelope wherever we can uh, setting targets uh, trying to reach them and sometimes exceeding them and being as, as, uh, as accountable as we can to the, uh, to the women in, in our community I think you once said you didn't encounter sexism anymore because you were too old and and too tall so what's the recipe i suppose we can't determine how old we are and i'm afraid some of us look rather shorter than you when we're standing in our high heels so what's the recipe for women in in tough parts of perhaps of uh, economic finance jobs for moving upwards uh, i would say um, first of all close ranks with other women you know join forces and and unity is always stronger than than being isolated and it's true that it's it's a world where sometimes we women can feel a bit isolated but there's always another woman and sometimes another man to reach out and to uh, to to make the case that we have so much to contribute and we can so much improve both the workplace and the bottom line that we have to do that and you know no compromise no compromise and never give up very last thought, I think you, you wrote for us in the world in 2019 about leaving a legacy of inclusion. I suppose I'm kind of tempted to ask a bit cheekily, do you think your successor should be a woman? It would be brilliant because I think, and, and by the way, that's hat off to Chancellor Merkel because, you know, she was the first woman Chancellor of Germany. I hope that her efforts to actually have a woman succeed her as head of the party uh, will lead to her being not only the first, but the first before the second. Christine Lagarde, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us today. A <laughs> pleasure, Anne. And we want to hear what you think. Does the IMF still fit the bill it was designed for? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.